Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, we are actually doing a re-record of the very first episode of this podcast series. So we're going back. We're uh, It's an episode that I was not very um, happy with the very first time that I did it. I did it literally driving around in the car on my phone. And so... Um, I've, there was there are certain things that I wanted to amend about it, and so this is what we're doing. Um, for those of you that are purists, hopefully you're not like taken aback. Although I have a feeling that people that have already listened to this are probably not listening to it again. So, um, and also I've got Justin here to talk these songs about with me, which these are among my favorite songs, and so it's a really cool and exciting thing to be able to talk about. Uh, this band with someone else and not just me prattle on by myself for a really long time. But before we get into all that, if you're tuning in for the very first time, please hit that subscribe button. It'll alert you to whenever we have a new episode available, which is every Monday morning, 9 central. That's 9 a.m., not 9 p.m. And we also have a Facebook page. Please go check it out. We've got a lot of cool stuff going on on there. It'll allow you to become part of the conversation be able to give us feedback, um, as well as we have a link to where you can help support our podcast. We are hoping to do some really cool, fun new things by the beginning of the year next year. And so um, with your um, patronage, we would be able to accomplish some of those things. So um, if you hit the link in the description, it'll show you exactly how to get involved. And... um, yeah, so Justin, who are we talking about? We are, of course, talking about Queen. Queen, in my opinion, and I really don't like saying in my opinion because there are some things that are objective. And while they're not objectively the greatest band of all time, I feel like I could cook up a pretty mean argument that they might just be the greatest band of all time. I would agree with that. And of course, a running joke, as if you've as you continue on your journey of listening through our episodes, you'll find that we say this a lot. But a British band, yes, the British band. I mean, the most British of all British bands. Their name is the leader of the British Empire. Their logo. It's British, man, uh, and that was actually their intent. Um, they they wanted something that was unquestionably British. It wasn't because of Freddie Mercury's um, uh, sexual preferences. It wasn't to um, incite controversy. They wanted something that was simple, that was bold, and that was undeniably English. So, Lucas, who is Queen? Queen is just four people, and it's always been four people. Yes, technically, other people were involved in the very beginning stages, and other people have filled in the shoes later in their career. But as far as their recording and their major touring, there's only ever been four people. You've got Freddie Mercury, who is the lead singer and piano player. And quite possibly the greatest 
lead singer of all time. Yes. I mean, just literally a a voice from heaven above. Man, what what a voice. My favorite voice that has ever been put on this earth. Incredible. We also have Brian May on the guitar. We've got Roger Taylor on the drums. We've got John Deacon on bass. And that is Queen. Throughout their whole career, they never kicked anyone out. They never broke up, although they did almost many times. In fact, when Def Leppard got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year, Brian May was the one that inducted them. And when Joe Elliott, the lead singer of Def Leppard, got up to say his part of the speech, he gave a special thanks to Brian May, and he said the best piece of advice he ever gave him as a band was don't break up. And Queen lived that. Even when one of their members was dying, they still kept going. And I think it's just about the most remarkable story in all of rock music. Their rise, fall, and rise again, only to fall and then somehow still rise up higher than ever. It's just been a constant up and down. I mean, they've been touring again since 2004, I think. Yeah, they... They've had a myriad of different lead singers that have replaced Freddie since he passed away. Um, they had um, Paul Rogers from Bad Company fill that spot for a while, and now they're with Adam Lambert, who was um, famously on American Idol. But, I mean, you can never replace Freddie Mercury's voice, and it would be foolish to even try. But, yes, they are still on tour, but also John Deacon is no longer with them. He has retired to The Quiet Life. He does not want to make any appearances. He doesn't get on stage and play. He's just li- he's retired and he's just living the rest of his life in obscurity. But Brian May and Roger Taylor are still out there giving people as close to a great Queen live show as you can get without having all four of the original members there. So let's get into the story behind Queen because Brian and Roger are really the ones who – where this kind of starts. Yeah. They're the ones that started it, and ironically, they're the ones that are still here right now at the end. Um, They formed a band called Smile in the late 60s while they were both going to college. Um, Brian May ended up becoming an astrophysicist. He (laughs) He has his doctorate. He's Dr. Brian May. That's amazing. And uh, Roger Taylor was studying to be a dentist. Which is probably where the name Smile came from. And so they were touring in the in the English club scene. And this guy named Farouk Balsara would kind of just follow them around and watch them gig. And would constantly come up and tell them, I could be a better lead singer for you guys than what you've got. And they kind of never would take him seriously. But then uh, their lead singer left. And they're just like, well, now we need a lead singer. And immediately this Farouk guy came up and was just like, well, I'll be your lead singer. And so they're like, okay, fine. Go ahead and join the band. So he joined on as lead singer, and then they had to find a bass player, which they quickly found John Deacon. And that happened about 1970, but it took until 1973 for them to actually finish and release that first record took them a really long time to get a record deal, and it took them a little bit of time to record that first album because they could only 
get recording time in between when bigger acts were using the studios. They would have to like record for like two hours at like four in the morning and just like take advantage of the little times where the studio wasn't in use. Um, and it was during this writing process that Farouk did two very important things. First, he changed the name of the band. Instead of calling it Smile, he said, let's call it Queen. And then second, he changed his name from Farouk Balsara to Freddie Mercury. And a legend was born. But then the first album. It didn't do well. No. None of the singles charted and the album didn't sell very well. But they were gaining some buzz as a great live group. And they already were starting to figure out how to use a studio. You listen to that first album, and you can tell that it was a band that originally had a different vision of who they were going to be. Like, it's almost like kind of a heavy metal album. It's really aggressive. It's really raw. They don't have that big vocal sound yet. They're not going into these eclectic areas that they would become known for. But by the time that second album came out, this is where you could tell that this band was about to do something huge. That second album, Queen 2, is probably their most underrated record. It is a brilliant, brilliant album. And they were actually able to get a top 10 single out of it with a song called Seven Seas of Rye. And so with that, they were able to kind of start gaining some momentum. They got their open on their first U.S. tour after that album. And then they went in to make the third album, Sheer Heart Attack. And from that, they got a worldwide number two single with Killer Queen. And that song just completely blew up the charts. Again, it didn't ever get to number one, but it got to number two, which was a huge deal. A lot of people think, oh, you look at a lot of bands that never had number one hits, and you think almost think that that's a failure but it's really hard to have a number one song yeah like not that many bands get to have that honor bestowed upon them but even though they had a number two worldwide hit they were completely broke they had no money their record deal had screwed them big time there is a funny story about how roger taylor couldn't even break sticks on tour because they couldn't afford to replace them they couldn't buy drum sticks. That's how poor they were. <laughs> and yet they were this becoming this big-time group. And so they were just like, okay, we're just going to go broke here. They got a new manager who promised that he was going to get them out of this really terrible contract that they had with their label. And so the thing that he told them is, I'll take care of your money. You just go in and make the best record that you possibly can. And had this record not worked, Queen would have probably given up gone back to the professions that they were working towards when they first made the band. But that album that they made happened to be A Night at the Opera, which contained their most iconic song, Bohemian Rhapsody. And that song becomes a worldwide number one hit. Oh, yeah. This, this song completely changed modern rock and roll music. I mean, they pulled in so many ideas they created something that was so unique and so wild that it just it took the world by storm. I did a little bit of reading on Bohemian Rhapsody and kind of how like the band got it into 
into circulation. And it's kind of interesting because, one, it, it's because of the radio, but they kind of, from what I read, like, the label didn't like the song because they thought it was too long. Oh, yeah. No, the label, they pushed for this to be the the, the first single off the album. They were like, heck no. Your single's got to be three minutes long. This is a six-minute long song. There's no discernible structure to it, and it's got opera, of all things, in the middle of it. Like, people thought that they were insane, but they believed in this song so much, and they were just able to get it into a, a specific radio station uh, DJ's hand, and that guy played it, like, uh, eight times over one weekend because he just loved the song that much. I heard he also, like, at first he would just play, like, snippets. Like, he, well, first he would keep, like, talking about how, like, there was this really great record that he had, but he couldn't play it. And then he would, like, accidentally, wink, wink, like, play snippets of the song. Yeah, they would, they definitely went around the system to make sure that this song got out there. But, I mean, the band was right. Everyone loved this song. This is just one of those few songs that just defies explanation of how a song like this could be such a big hit. But it came at the perfect time, and it was just the perfect song. And they become the biggest band in the world. Absolutely. This song just takes them to the top of the world. This is the song that made them household names. And they went on a string of records that was really incredible. Day at the Races, News of the World, Jazz, and... Then this kind of the success all culminated in an album called The Game that came out in 1980, which is when they kind of hit their biggest in that early period. Um, all the way up to that point, they still hadn't gotten a number one in America. But with The Game, they were able to get two number one singles off of that album in America, which was Crazy Little Thing Called Love and Another One Bites the Dust. That makes a lot of sense. The two most American-sounding yeah, songs they ever made. I was going to say. <laughs> Which we'll talk about that more later. Um, but yeah, they were huge at the beginning of 1980. And it looked like that they were poised to just rule the entire decade. And then things took a pretty bad turn. This was the point in their career where drug use... And Freddie Mercury's emerging dangerous sex life started to really pull the band apart. They went to record in Munich, which ended up being really unhealthy for all of them, especially for Freddie. And they actually made the worst album of their career right after the game, which was Hot Space. And it really tanked all of their record sales and just really kind of shot the band and put them in a pretty desperate spot, which we will actually continue that story on another episode when we come back to Queen. But everything that we're going to be looking at in this episode kind of is from when they hit it big with Bohemian Rhapsody all the way up till Hot Space. So we're looking at that that fertile creative period when they were at the top of their game. And so what is it about this period of time that really kind of defines Queen? So first off, they had Roy Thomas Baker 
producing for them, which was huge. They, during this time, were at their most eclectic as far as pulling from every style of music you could possibly conceive, whether that be Broadway or country or jazz or ragtime or opera or classical music, um, like rockabilly throwback 50s, soul and dance music. Like they just, if it existed, they tried it. But the thing that was so key about Queen was that no matter what they tried, there were two things that always made it sound like Queen. First thing being those vocals. When you hear those layered harmonizing vocals, Mm -hmm. you always know it's Queen. Like that that vocal sound is unmistakable. You can't uh, hear that and not think that it's Queen. In fact, when you hear other bands do it, a lot of times your immediate goes, oh, they were inspired by Queen. I hear that all the time. I'll hear bands that do like try and copy that Queen layered vocal sound, and you can tell exactly where their inspiration came from. Absolutely. And then the other thing being Brian May's guitar. Not just the way he played, but the way his guitar sounded. He's got probably the most unique sounding guitar of all time. And the reason why it's so unique sounding is because he built that guitar. Mm. And the bassist, John Deacon, built his amp. So there's, it's literally a one of a kind. And it's called the Red Special. And it was crafted from a uh, mantelpiece from his childhood home that his dad helped him build. Wow. Which doesn't get more epic than that. That's incredible. And, I mean, you could never replicate the sound that comes out of that thing because – in order to do so, you would have to have that same mantelpiece to work with, and you would have to build it the exact same way as he did. And then on top of that, you would have to recreate his amp exactly the way that it was built. So all of that resulted in a guitar that could only ever be Brian May's. And if the vocals don't clue you in that it's a Queen song. As soon as you hear that guitar, you know that it's a Queen song. And so those are the, those are kind of like the two things that always kept them constant whenever they would try all of these um, different genres and they would try and blend all of these weird components together. Those are the two things that always kept them grounded. And I think it's why they were able to adapt and change themselves so much is because there was always a core that remained. You look at some of these other bands that try and do different things, that they try and evolve their sound and it doesn't work because they end up losing the core. And for me, Queen always kept the core intact. And this is what has led them to be the greatest live band of all time. Yes, Um they absolutely helped create the live show into what it is today. Not to say that they pioneered the live show because the live show existed before. Um, Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones had kind of taken the live show to the arena level, but Queen were the first ones to do it properly and to really fully um, develop what a band in an arena-sized crowd could do. Freddie Mercury had this unnatural ability to make every single person 
in a giant arena feel like it was just them and him. Like, even the people in the very back felt like Freddie Mercury was right in front of them and singing just to them. They were the first ones to really experiment with crowd participation. I mean, look at a song like We Will Rock You. Right. The reason that song was written was so that people in the audience could play along. Because Brian May thought to himself, well, what can they do? They're all cuddled up together. They can stomp their feet and they can clap their hands. Like they they always thought of their audience and how to get them involved. And um, how to not just like make the show about yourself, but how to make it like a coming together of a long lost family. And Queen was just able to do that really better than any other band ever has, as well as they really upped the stage show as far as lighting, as far as sound, um, costume changes and props, and really just making such a theatrical show. Queen uh, was one of the key figures in doing that and did it better than just about everybody else. And then on top of that, they just sounded so good and they played so good. And Freddie always sang perfectly live. And they always kept things fresh because if you think about 1977, for instance, could you recreate what Queen was doing in the studio without Pro Tools? No. Absolutely not. And they would have been doomed had they tried to. And so they were always really clever about reinventing all of their songs live. They always were able to put these interesting twists to the songs to where they were able to kind of give the songs a new life to them so that way they could play them live. And I just think the thing that was so strong about their live performance is, again, the unity, the bond that the audience had with the band. Um, that's a really, really hard thing to do when you're playing to that many people. And Queen did it better than anyone else. And people loved Freddie. Everyone loves Freddie. How can you not love Freddie? I mean, he was so charismatic. He was so theatrical and bombastic. The way he would strut across the stage, the way that he would invite the audience to sing along with him, and then just his incredible vocal ability he was just he is the perfect front man there's never been a greater front man than him not just singer but front man someone that leads a band someone that um connects the audience to the band there's just there's never been anyone better and there never will be anyone better he really was the all-time great and always will be all right there you have it that is Queen in a nutshell. Yeah, as much of a nutshell as I can make. I could literally talk on and on and on and on. I had to make myself be concise. All right, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we are going to talk about our six songs that are dedicated to Queen. Stay tuned. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We are talking about Queen, my personal favorite group of all time. We're going to be talking about the songs to represent this band. So if you're listening for the very first time, what we're doing is I pick a set of usually six songs. Sometimes I'll do more, but I pick a set of songs that if you've never listened to this artist before, then these songs are going to give you the best possible first impression that you can get along with creating a song order that creates a satisfying emotional journey. So that way we start in one specific area and we end in another specific area and the songs have a flow to them that you get to the end and you feel satisfied. So it's not necessarily me picking my six favorite songs or the six most popular songs. Rather, I put a lot of thought into figuring out what songs fit together while at the same time accomplishing the goal of introducing someone to this band. And with Queen, this was kind of a hard task because they have so many great songs. But in the description of the episode, you will find the instructions to find a Spotify playlist that has these songs on them. If you've never heard these songs before, or maybe you have, go and listen to these songs. Specifically, in the order that they're in, they just might give you a new perspective on them. So please go check that out once you've listened to this episode. And without further ado, let's jump right in with a monster of a song. Somebody to love. Mm-hmm. Mm. What a song to start with. What a great, and honestly, what a great intro to Queen, just period. I mean, you you learn everything you need to know about Queen from this Absolutely. song. Absolutely. I mean, one of the hallmarks for me about Queen, of course, that we've talked about is just just the great gang vocal work, the multi-layered vocals. And to intro this song with that is amazing. So the way that they got the layered vocals on this song is really impressive and incredible. Because they wanted to have it sound like there was a massive choir. But at the same time, they wanted the choir to sound like them. So there was no effect to multiply their voices. They literally had to track every vocal line up to about 50 times. And I'm not exaggerating. Like, literally about 50 times per line. And there is a lot of background vocal lines in this song. Yeah. So many different ones, complex ones. Um, and Freddie had to get most of the band drunk to accomplish this goal. <laughs> <laughs> he, they would do like about five or six takes on a line, and then he would have them do shots, and they go, all right, let's do three more, while he was getting them feeling good. Um, but... One of Freddie's all-time favorite artists was Aretha Franklin. Yeah. And this song is absolutely uh, inspired by her. Yeah, this is definitely a tribute to that very gospel style. Yeah. And this was actually surprisingly the only time they ever made a song in this vein. Hmm. Again, like, they just, they always were trying different things. They wanted to um, experiment with all the different styles that were available. Yeah, I think this song really highlights their depth and versatility. I don't know how you might feel about this, but I feel like there's kind of a similar style to Bohemian Rhapsody in yeah, this song as well. Absolutely. This cuz this was the big single on the album that came after mm. the one that Bohemian so Night at the Opera 
Bohemian Rhapsody was on that one. And so this was the sequel album called A Day at the Races. And a lot of comparison came saying that this is Bohemian Rhapsody Part 2. And Freddie actually has said that he likes this song more than he likes Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I've heard that. He thinks that it's a better song. I think this song, one of the things that really kind of makes it for me is it really highlights Freddie's talent as a pianist. Yes, yes. This song has a lot going on piano-wise. Yeah. And Freddie always did not think that he was the best piano player. He kind of always was very down on his piano playing, and it's why he eventually stopped playing piano the farther they got into their career. First off, because he didn't like sitting at the piano when he was on stage. He wanted to have more songs that he could run around and do his thing. But he was always very critical of his piano playing, which I don't know how he could because... On all of their songs that feature piano, the piano is, like, not easy to play. No. And he always plays it so perfectly in exactly what the song needs. Yeah. It always blends so well with the other instruments. Yeah. And then his lead vocal throughout this whole song is just about the best that he had ever done. Yeah. It's just – it's got – he hits so many high notes and all these amazing runs – and he really sounds like he's full of that soul. Like, it doesn't sound like a guy trying to imitate gospel. It's like he truly became gospel to sing this song. Yeah. And that's the, what they always did so well. One of the hallmarks of Queen shows up in this song as well, just with the transition into the guitar solo and the drum hits. I feel like Queen just has always done such a great job in in changing with it's changing keys, moving chords, like every single song that they've done, there's always great transition pieces in the different sections of songs. Mm-hmm. I, I really discovered this when I started um, looking at their chord progressions because I would a lot of times break down their chord progressions to try and play them on piano. And I really learned a lot about music theory by looking at the way that Queen structured their songs chord-wise. They were always able to create these incredible transitions because they had such a great grasp on theory. And yeah, the, the that bridge transition right before the guitar solo on Somebody to Love, um, their chord choice there is brilliant. They just they know how to how to manipulate the actual chordal elements to get where they want to get. And right. so um yeah, that's a great example. And then of course what a great ending to this song. Yes. You think it's over. Like you, when they're building it up and they're doing the find me, somebody to love. You think that like it's going to build up to the ending right there. And he does that falsetto part all by himself. And you, mm-hmm. you almost could think that that's the end of the song. And then they come in for one more, uh, what I like to call the victory lap. Where they're just kind of like, yeah, we just, we just won this song we won at at slaying on this song so now let's just like revel in it and it's just a perfect way to end the song and then there's this very very playful little piano hit yes. right at the end you almost you almost miss it but yeah he's right at the end he kind of just hits this little playful uh note there and that takes us into our next song you're my best friend Ooh. Yes, another great song. I, in my opinion, the most underrated song on this list because this list is full of hits. There's yeah. no deep cuts on this song. 
Yeah, I would agree. But I would say this is the most untalked about song on the list. And it's a real shame because I really think this is one of the best songs that they ever wrote. This is a very Beatles-like song. Yes, it is. And this song was actually written by John Deacon, the bass player. I actually read that when I was playing this song. And um, I forgot somebody else was telling me about it, how um, Deacon wrote it. And I guess Freddie refused to play it because it's on an electric piano and he doesn't like the sound of it. Yeah. Well, it's not necessarily that he didn't like the sound of it, but he – Freddie was very much for um, letting the person that wrote the song call the shots. And John Deacon really wanted to play the electric piano on it because that's what he wrote the song on. And it's perfect for the song, I think. Yeah. And so, yeah, John Deacon plays all of the electric piano on the song, which is a really – cool thing and I just think that this is such a pure love song like it's not talking about all of these grandiose like poetic declarations of love like getting like so deep it's like your love is like the rolling ocean (laughs) (laughs) you know it's not sappy yeah it's it's really pure about just talking about how you do life with your best friend and that your love for them is not in how they look or, you know, the romantic things they do for you, but rather how they go through life with you, how they're there when life is hard, how they celebrate with you when life is good, and how whatever you're going through, they're the one person you can talk to that you can laugh with and that you want to be with. And I think that fewer love songs that I've ever heard have demonstrated a more pure expression of love than this song has. And I think what I love about this song, it's pretty succinct. I mean, it's not like this overly drawn-out emotional song. Like, it's, it kind of stays in the pocket mm-hmm. musically, and it doesn't, even lyrically, honestly, like, it's just this very melodic, you know, happy-go-lucky song that is just so catchy. Yeah, and that's really in line with how John Deacon would write his songs. John Deacon did not write very often. But boy, when he did, he made it count. Because he also wrote another one, Bites the Dust. And that was, of course, a monster smash for them. And he also wrote their their big late career hit, I Want to Break Free. And yeah, this, the song is exactly what it needs to be. It's not, um, it's not overplayed. It doesn't overstay its welcome. For me, that's the perfect song of... Like you hear it and you immediately want to play it again because you're you want to hear more. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good thing as a song. Is if you when it's over, you want to make people listen to it again instead of going, okay, is this song over yet? And this gets us into our next song, "Don't Stop Me Now." Yes. So this song has had an interesting trajectory in Queen's catalog. It was not a very big hit for them when it originally came out. Which is such a shame because I think this is probably my favorite Queen song. It's a lot of people's favorite Queen song. Um, Because the album that came on, Jazz, it was overshadowed by the big double single off that album, which was Fat Bottom Girls' Bicycle Race. (laughs) That was kind of the big uh, hit for them on that album. This was kind of like the minor hit. Um, but then kind of as time has gone on, this song has become more and more popular. Now 
it's almost as popular as like the mega hits. And I would say that's only happened in the last like five years. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, this is just my personal opinion, but I feel like this is probably one of their top three songs, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Up there with Rhapsody and Bites the Dust and We Will Rocky, We Are the Champions. Like, I remember hearing this song for the first time like 10 years ago, and I had never heard this song before. It wasn't one of those things where I was just like, oh, I've heard this, but I didn't know it was Queen or, you know, anything like that. I remember hearing just going, I have never even heard of this song, but this song is really good. Yeah. I think some of that kind of has to do with just how this song starts. Like, it kind of starts off with this power ballad feel. Mm-hmm. But then— It switches it up on oh, you. Oh, man. You get this incredible <laughs> transition, and that just blows you away for the rest of the song. Yeah. But yeah, lately I've been hearing this song everywhere. I've been hearing this song in so many commercials. It's been in like six movies that have come out in the last two or three years. Like it's kind of been like mind-blowing. Like I'll be watching a movie and I'll be like, well, there's – they're playing the song again. <laughs> um, like it's definitely right now the song that everyone's going to. And I actually read an article a couple months back about – uh, they did a scientific research to figure out what is the most inspiring song of all time. And they concluded it was Don't Stop Me Now. Wow. Due to the lyrical content, because the song is literally just about having fun. Yeah. There's no downside to it. It's not saying I'm having fun, but I'm really sad on the inside. Or I'm having fun, but I don't want it to end. It's just, it's literally just like the fun will never end. I'm having such a good time. Life is great. Yeah. And Brian May famously hated this song for a really long time because he knew that the song's underlying message was about Freddie's discovering of the the gay nightclub scene. Yeah. And about all of the sexual things that he was going through at that time. And Brian May was very uncomfortable with it and was just like, I don't see that lifestyle the way that you're singing about it right now. And used to just not want to play it. Ever. And he said that his stance has changed recently. He still doesn't love it, but he doesn't hate it like he used to. Yeah. And I think the key thing is for a lot of people is to, to know is that really it was really more out of a concern for how Freddie was living his life yeah. at the time. Because it was definitely – at this point, they didn't know that the AIDS virus was going to be a consequence of what all was going on. But that just, you know – he definitely saw that with that scene came a lot of drug use, specifically cocaine. And he also knew that it was distancing Freddie from the rest of the band. Like typically the band would be in one limo and Freddie and his uh, entourage would be in another limo. And so it's just kind of like it created this separation between them. But they were able to resolve it. And that gets us into our fourth song, Crazy little thing called love. Yes. Uh, A song that uh, I've found that a lot of people always don't realize is Queen. I can't tell you the number of people that have thought this was an Elvis song. Because it doesn't sound like Queen and it pretty much is a tribute to Elvis. It absolutely is. Uh, Elvis was another one of Freddie's favorite. He He had three top favorite musicians, which was Aretha Franklin, Elvis, and Jimi Hendrix. And so this song was absolutely a um, 
a nod back to kind of the, just the whole 50s yeah. sound in general. And somehow this song gets them big in America. <laughs> yeah, finally. Their relationship with America was was really interesting throughout their career. They only were big in America for a very small amount of time, and it was that time when they had those two number one singles from the game. Besides that, for most of their career, America didn't give two flips about them mm. because of the controversy around Freddie Mercury as a front man. Um, for conservative America, that was like a shocking and vile thing to them. And so their videos didn't get played very often on MTV. And just also, glam was never a really big thing in America. They preferred more of like either the Fleetwood Mac Eagles sound or like the party rock of like Van Halen, uh, that stuff. Which is so interesting because I feel like Queen really kind of fits in the middle there somewhere. They do, but just for whatever reason, uh, America didn't catch on until after Freddie passed away. And it was kind of like everyone in America was just like, okay, now we get how great (laughs) Queen was. It was kind of posthumous. Um, But for that brief little moment, they, they had America. And Crazy Little Thing Called Love was definitely one of the biggest reasons that happened. Speaking of America, this next song I feel like is a song that really kind of influenced a lot of music in America after it came out. And that song is Under Pressure. Yeah, so this actually came at the time that the band was struggling the most. Um, They were about to head to Munich and... This was actually not right at the time that they started having the troubles, but it was right after the song came out that all of the stuff that was brewing under the surface really started to make its way forward. And the song was not originally intended to be on an album. It was a standalone single. It came out well before the album came out and was just intended to stand on its own. But then when they realized that they weren't getting any hit singles off of the new album, Hot Space, they tagged Under Pressure onto it at the last minute and um, to, in a hopes to try and get people to buy it because, hey, it's got Under Pressure on it. You need to buy this record. And it's the only great song on that album. There are some good songs on that album, but Under Pressure is the only great one on there. And it also happens to be one of their best songs of all time. Yes. And honestly, I think one of the best songs in music history. Yes. It's definitely the greatest duet in music history. Um, David Bowie was the one that uh, collaborated with them. Him and Freddie Mercury were very good friends. And you can hear the the competitiveness that they have. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell that Freddie's showing off a little bit. He does some incredible vocal but David Bowie also added a lot of important elements to the song. He's yeah. the one that came up with the snaps and the claps. He was also the one that brought the lyrics forward, and Queen brought the music. Obviously, John Deacon came up with that incredible bass line. Of course. Which became very infamous later when uh, Vanilla Ice stole that bass line yes, and used did. it for Ice Ice Baby, which at a time when sampling was still not a regular thing he thought that if he just added one little extra note in there that he could say that it's not theirs and that it's his but the court did not rule in his favor 
and it pretty much like completely destroyed his music career. But there's a lot of people, I'll play this song for them, and I'll say, tell me what song this is, and they'll go, that's Ice Ice Baby. I'm like, nope. This song is really complex, which it kind of belies like how it starts. Like I feel like there's so many layers in this song, and... And I think that's what I love so much about it is like it starts off really simple. And then as you listen, like you're just like, oh, man, like this song is musically is just has so much depth to it. Yeah. It really kind of follows the theme of the title of the song, which is pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, you can feel the pressure mounting throughout the song the further you get into it, especially when you get to that that incredible scream that Freddie Mercury does before it gets to the end of the breakdown. Yeah. Which is actually the highest note he ever hits in his entire career. That's impressive. This song was huge for them. And it really, had they not had this hit song at the time that they did, they might not have been able to recover from Hot Space. Because Hot Space was that bad of an album. But then ultimately, it leads us to the greatest Queen song of all time not just the greatest queen song the greatest song of all time bohemian rhapsody bohemian rhapsody so when under pressure ends with the fading out uh snaps and claps it's kind of a really long fade out and it really kind of creates this tension and creates this empty space and i felt that that was the perfect time to introduce those incredible background vocals starting off with, Mm. is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? So again, I put a lot of thought into how I transition these songs. This is probably the greatest vocal performance, I think, of all time. Yes. And the way that they recorded it is a mere... The whole song, the fact that it makes any sense at all, let alone that it's such a genius song, is a miracle. No chorus... And so many key changes. (laughs) And the fact that Freddie had the entire song finished in his head before they started recording. There's only one thing that made it on there that wasn't in his original thought, and that was the guitar solo. Mm. Brian May was the one that suggested, hey, you should put a guitar solo after that second chorus there, or the part where he's singing Mama. And Freddie was just like, oh, actually, that would be a good idea. Um, That was just going to be an interlude there. But no one knows what this song is about. Not even the bandmates, because Freddie never told them. And I think that that's actually a really amazing thing. That would be so strange for me to be playing a song that I'm just like, I don't know what this is is but it sounds really cool now there are they do have some really good guesses they pretty much say that this is freddie's coming out song Mm. because it was at this point in his life when he started to experiment sexually because he was um he was trying to be heterosexual up until that point and then you see in his personal life that after the success of this album and that song that he started to branch out And so Brian May thinks that this song is about him coming to terms with his identity, with coming to terms with his sexuality, with trying to figure out who he wants to be and how to reconcile with the people he loves on what he was. Mm. But again, we don't really know. And Freddie Mercury was so good about just keeping the lid on it because I think that in certain instances – 
it's a really beautiful thing when we don't know what the artist's intent was because it allows us to put our own meaning to it. I love how complex this song is and how it just constantly evolves as it goes on. Again, it shouldn't work. You put all these parts together and that's what they really were. He he had all of these different parts and he was just like, well, what if I stitched them together? What would I have? Like he had written the – what he calls the cowboy section before, which is the mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head. Mm-hmm. Um, that was something he had originally written to be its own thing. And he had the opera section for something else and was just kind of started going, OK, I've got all these fragments. Let's, let's figure out how I can make this one cohesive unit. And they were recording this song in two different studios because they needed that many channels on the monitor to do so. Mm. Because whenever they tried to do it at one studio, they had overdubbed too many times. And they were starting to lose some of the recordings because it was literally making the tape clear because <laughs> they went over it too many times. And so it's like, we got to get another studio just to even pull this off. And they didn't record anything in order. Like Roger Taylor would say that in one studio you hear them, you know, rocking out to So You Think You Can Stone Me and Spit in My Eye. And then they walk into another studio and they're trekking Galileos. And he's they were all just like, we have no idea what this is even going to sound like. And they just trusted him. They trusted that Freddie knew what he was doing. But they were all just kind of sitting there just going – Oh God! Why are we putting all this effort into this? I have—they n- didn't even know how the song was going to structure or flow. It was just all this seemed like this jumbled mess. But then, apparently, when they heard it, because they all pushed for it to be the leading single, they heard it and they realized they just mm. made something incredible. And I think what people have to remember at this point—I mean, they were broke. Yeah, I mean, this was something really special happens when you have a an incredibly talented band that has their backs to the wall. Um, This is something that in future episodes with other bands, we're going to see a pattern. Typically bands in this situation that are truly great will make the best material of their lives when they're in this situation. I can think of another one right now immediately that ended up being in the exact same position that Queen was. It was their fourth album and when their backs were against the wall, they made their defining record. And so what an ending, what a fitting ending to such a great, great band. Yes. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody couldn't go anywhere else. I originally maybe thought about putting it at the very beginning, but then I was just like, no, this song needs to be at the end. It's kind of hard to top. Yeah. I mean, how do, where do you go from there? I know that on the Greatest Hits album, it's the first song, but that's also a marathon of incredible songs. When you yeah. got a compact song of si- set of six, you've got to save Bohemian Rhapsody for the final punch. I mean, just his voice just lilting away with any way the wind blows, and that gong is just like, it's signal, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> you don't got nothing left. There you have it, everybody. Queen. Yes, Queen. Um, We will come back to Queen so many times. We'll come back to them probably more than any other group because I've got so much to say about them. 
But um, when we come back, we're going to talk about the bonus song and we'll give our final thoughts. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We are talking about Queen in this episode and we just finished talking about the set of six songs, which were Somebody to Love, You're My Best Friend, Don't Stop Me Now, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Under Pressure, and of course, Bohemian Rhapsody. Mm, Yeah, you can't top that list. So right now we're going to talk about the bonus song. Um, For those of you that don't know, the bonus song is an extra song that I like to add in to give a spotlight to either a lesser known artist or a not as successful artist or just someone that I wouldn't dedicate an entire episode to. And it's a shame that our bonus artist never had a big solo career because I'm sure that he would have had an incredible one. And that person is... Freddie Mercury. Of course. Uh, this was actually a song that he did not write. This is a cover song, but it ended up being really fitting for him. The song is called The Great Pretender. And I actually went a really long time without ever hearing this song. And when I did finally get around to listening to it, I was completely floored by... First off, his performance, and second of all, what it meant for him at that point in his life. Yeah. I mean, this song has everything you love about his style, his musical style, in in one song. Mm-hmm. It's flamboyant. It's over the top. It's kind of campy. It's got that, that bit of cheese factor yeah. that only he could pull off. Um, but also at the same time, whenever he recorded the song, he knew that he was had the AIDS virus Mm. and that he had pretty much learned that he was going to die. Although at this point he had just found out and wouldn't pass away for another four years. One of the interesting things that I read about that particular time period in Freddie's life was that the band knew, but he kept telling them, write me more stuff. Like, I want to do it. And then when I'm gone, you guys can finish it. Yeah. Which is... Just such an incredible thing about Freddie Mercury. Yeah, he never gave up. He never wanted the illness to beat him, at least for as long as possible. And he he didn't want the public to know, partly because he knew that the press would hound him, but also because he didn't want people to buy their albums out of pity mm. or to think, oh, he's sick. Let's just let's go buy it, even though I normally wouldn't buy it. And so the Great Pretender really took on another meaning for him. Um, he was pretending like everything was fine to the world and to a lot of people that were close to him. Even at the point that he recorded the song, he hadn't told the band yet. Mm. Um, really hardly anyone knew at this point. So he really was the pretender literally dying on the inside while still putting up this facade that I'm doing well. And so you look at the lyrics, even though the the lyrics are about, you know, in the sense of a relationship, it takes on this whole new meaning. Like, it almost kind of makes me cry listening to this song because his performance is just so gut-wrenchingly good, especially when he gets to that end part where it does that key change up. Yep. Oh, man. Key change. One of the best one of the best little snippets of his vocal ever when he hits that that big note at the end mm, is magic something interesting that you might not know lucas 
is that this song really kind of reminds me of every Chinese song that I've ever heard. Really? Because for whatever reason, Chinese people are infatuated with rock ballads. Oh, yeah? It's literally every song, for the most part, is like a 90s, 80s, 90s rock ballad. Hmm. Interesting. And this song has just has the hallmarks of all of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the song was – it was – I would say it was the biggest hit of his solo career, but it still wasn't that big of a hit. Um, But I could totally see this being like sung at a drag bar. Like it just – it has that feel to it. Yeah. But yeah, so there's the bonus song. So, Justin – Give me your opinions on Queen and on this song list. Well, first off, I think we've talked about it quite a bit. I mean, but Queen might really arguably be one of the best bands of all time in musical history. Certainly was one of the the greatest voices, if not the greatest voice in just from a lead singer perspective in Freddie Mercury. Um and it's so funny because they, you know, they really pioneered. Well, I, I guess they wouldn't. I can't say that they pioneered um, some things, but they really kind of took what was laid in groundwork for them, and just really, in terms of like the arena rock scene, and they really took it over the top. And of course, a lot of that has to do with Freddie Mercury and his style. But I mean, they just made such great music, incredible musicians, and. I mean, the amount of hits that they wrote is just absurd. Yeah, they fewer bands have hidden have written as many hits as they have. And not only were they hits, they I mean, these are songs that have like shaped popular culture for for years. I mean, to the point where they had a like a sample of their songs stolen. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I would few other bands have so many hits that everyone has heard. Yeah. Like, even the Beatles, like, you don't hear Beatles songs just being played everywhere. Like, I mean, the number of people that have heard We Will Rock You and We Are the Champions, the number of people that know Another One Bites the Dust and Under Pressure and Bohemian Rhapsody, like, it's just insane, and I think this song, this song list really kind of encapsulates everything that there is to love about Queen. Um, and I mean, I think one of my favorite things about Queen has always been the gang vocals. I mm-hmm. always feel like they've, it's just so distinct and they just, they did it so well. Again, it was the anchor that kept them solid through all of the genre changes that they went through. Yeah. There you have it, everybody. That is Queen in a nutshell for you. Yeah. Queen changed my life, literally. Whenever I discovered them as a senior in high school, I mean, I had heard, again, I would heard some of the songs before. You, you can't live your life for a number of years and not hear some of these songs. It's just not possible. Yeah. But when I really started to hear their music when I was a senior in high school, it changed my life more than any other band had ever changed my life before. To where all of a sudden it was like I'd had a revelation and just gone, I have now heard the truly great music. 
Mm. And my life and the, my trajectory of my life was never the same after hearing them. It was once I heard them that I all of a sudden realized I want to be a musician. And I had been playing music for five years at that point. Mm. And I just thought of it as a hobby until I heard Queen. And then I was just like, nope. All right, music is my life now. Had I not heard Queen at that time, I don't know if that had, had it happened. So I owe them the biggest debt. So Queen is very personal to me. So there we go. That's Queen. We will absolutely come back to them someday. Um, we're going to come back to them many, many times. They have a treasure trove of great songs to talk about. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a comment, a review. Go find our Facebook page. It's the Good Music Podcast page on Facebook. Get involved in the discussion there. Also, there's a link in the description for you to uh, help to donate to this channel. It'll allow us to do some really cool stuff coming up in the future. Also, please check out the Spotify list to listen to these songs. And thank you so much for listening. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. Keep on listening to good music.